Welcome to Rex Factor! This week, Catherine of Aragon Biography. With your hosts, Graham Duke and Ali Hood. Hello! Hello! And welcome to Rex Factor, reviewing all the Queen and Prince consorts of England from Elswith to Prince Philip. Uh, follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Rex Factor Pod. Like us on Facebook and email Rex Factor Podcast at hotmail.com or sign up for bonus content at patreon.com forward slash Rex Factor. Today, we are beginning what I suspect will be a very popular run of episodes with the six wives of Henry VIII. All right. OK, do you feel pressure, G-Man? I feel pressure. It's one of those things where it will be the one that's looked back on most frequently to new people. So yes. hello, uh, all <laughs> you hoverboard riding dudes out there. Indeed. Welcome to the future. <laughs> We're doing the past, and it's 2022. <laughs> anyway, first up, uh, of course, is Catherine of Aragon. And because there's so much to cover for Catherine, this will be the first of two episodes. Biography today, review next time. Infanta. So Catherine of Aragon was born at the Archiepiscopal Palace of Alcala de Henares in Madrid on the 16th of December 1485, so four months after the Battle of Bosworth in England. Oh, nice. Hmm. Nice to place her. Yes. (laughs) Uh, She's the youngest daughter of Ferdinand of Aragon and Isabella of Castile, both monarchs in their own right, whose marriage basically creates Spain as a European superpower. Okay, because they're a super, super power. Oh, exactly. Um, And Catherine is something of both of her parents. So Ferdinand is a brave soldier, but a particularly very canny schemer and diplomat, whilst Isabella's fiercely devout Catholic and uh, very much a force to be reckoned with. So she's the only queen regnant in 15th century Europe. um, And uh, she does that after fighting a five-year civil war and then refused to concede power to Ferdinand in Castile. So they rule as joint monarchs. Oh, nice. Uh, but their major legacy as joint monarchs is the Reconquista, which is the crusade to expel uh, the Muslim kingdoms from southern Spain. Um, Isabella spent most of her pregnancy uh, for Catherine on campaign, so she only withdrew to Cordoba after capturing Ronda before then heading to Madrid to actually give birth. So she's a full-on, um, uh, what's-her-name character? Warrior queen. And it was these guys that uh, made... Spain Christian again rather than Muslim? Well, most of... So Castile, Aragon and some of the other kingdoms are Christian, but the south uh, of Spain was still ruled by uh, Muslim kingdoms uh, until 1492, and Catherine is there with her parents for the ceremonial entrance into Granada, uh, which marks the surrender of the last Muslim kingdom in Spain. So her her parents are the Athelstans of modern France. Mm. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Well, let's see if we work that one out. It's a metaphor too far, isn't it? (laughs) Um, uh, Is that how they're viewed in Spain, as the sort of founding fathers of modern Spain? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, because it's 800 years that the Muslims have been in southern Spain. Wow. Oh my gosh! So I'd never appreciated that. It wasn't a, a flash invasion. No, no, uh, no. From North Africa mm. that was kicked out of. It was eight hundred years. Yeah, that's quite a blind spot. <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, but anyway, yeah, so Catherine's there for that uh, sort of remarkable ceremonial entrance into Granada. Um, because of this, the uh, Pope, Alexander VI, uh, gives them the title Los Reyes Catolicas, or the Catholic Monarchs. So they are, you know, Europe's premier monarchy. <laughs> Such a geeky title. <laughs> with a, with a, you could be the absolute shining example of the teacher's pet. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> um, at 14, the family uh, moved to Granada, and specifically the Alhambra, which is a magnificent uh, Islamic fortress and palace. And this is what Catherine ultimately really considers home. Um, indeed, she takes the pomegranate fruit as her personal badge. I've got to say, I don't, I'm not sure England really compares after that. We don't have many pomegranates kicking around. We're still mostly pumpkins and parsnips. Mm. <laughs> Mm. Um, now, Isabella raises Catherine to be uh, the ideal queen consort who will promote Spanish interests abroad, along with her other daughters. She gets an excellent education, containing not just the traditional pursuits like music, dancing, embroidery, etc., uh, but also arithmetic, canon and civil law, classical literature, philosophy, theology, uh, several languages such as Spanish, French, Greek and Latin. Uh, and the humanist scholar Erasmus thought her a miracle of female learning, noting that she was well instructed, not merely in comparison to her sex, and is no less to be respected for her piety and her erudition. Oh, he sounds laughing. <laughs> She's very clever and not just for a woman. <laughs> Although, do remember she is a woman. <laughs> Um, and it was for England that Catherine is being schooled as the ideal consort, uh, with a marriage alliance agreed in 1489, when Catherine's just four years old, uh, between Catherine and the eldest son and heir of Henry VII, Prince Arthur. Mm. Knowledge, knowledge, um, knowledge node uh, <laughs> engaged. I remember this bit. <laughs> uh, Spain will gain a useful ally against an increasingly uh, belligerent France, while the new Tudor regime under Henry VII will gain considerable prestige by having the connection to Europe's premier monarchs. Uh, anyway, so from the age of four, this is Catherine's destiny. So she grows up being referred to as the Princess of Wales. Um, and probably she can't actually remember a time when it's not her destiny to be Queen of England, which may well have influenced her determination to remain as such in years to come. Good point. Knowledge node. <laughs> <laughs> it is getting a good tickling today, I've got to be honest. <laughs> um, however, in the 1490s, Catherine's destiny was shaken somewhat by Spanish concerns about instability in England. Uh, so war was brewing with Scotland and uh, Perkin Warbeck was claiming... Uh, claiming to be the rightful king. Um, but the Spanish are really are committed to this alliance. They actually play quite an important role in negotiating both an Anglo-Scottish peace, um, but also pressurising Henry VII into executing Warbeck, um, and also the Earl of Warwick, who is the last male Plantagenet. So not Warwick the kingmaker, but this is the son of uh, George Duke of Clarence, the one that gets drowned in the vat of Malmesbury wine. Yes. I remember him. Hmm. Uh, <laughs> um, the... Uh... So we are we're enthralled to them. We're the, we're, uh, were, were the newspapers also talking about us as a puppet regime? If we've got the <laughs> if they haven't yet got the Infanta Catherine married to Arthur, mm. um, they've always got that as a hold over us, and they're actually dictating what we do with foreign policy here with the Scots. I guess with the Scots, they're sort of helping out. Because that's also yeah. part of their thing. They also would kind of like the Scots to be a bit less friendly towards France as well. So they think, oh, if we can yeah. get England and Scotland both, you know, yeah, with yeah. us. Um, so in that sense, Spain are probably helping out. But yeah, with Perkin Warbeck and the Earl of Warwick being executed, that very much is a 
we're not saying this won't happen, but if you do want this marriage to go ahead, we would really prefer them not to be alive. Uh, lots of love. The perfect Christian couple. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so after Warbeck and Warwick are executed in 1499, uh, the, Spanish ambassador, uh, the Spanish ambassador de Puebla uh, reports back to Ferdinand and Isabella that there does not remain a drop of doubtful royal blood in England. Yeah, I right, put that to bed then. Mm. Uh, so preparations are now truly underway. Um, Henry's uh, queen consort, Elizabeth of York, regularly sends useful advice for Catherine to prepare herself uh, for her time in England. So she should learn to drink wine. <laughs> That's homework I never got. <laughs> yeah. so I, but I did revision. But, you know. You'd been the perfect uh, queen I consort. Know. <laughs> the reasoning being that the water is not drinkable in England. Oh, good grief. So it's a survival manual. Yes, whereas Catherine, of course, is in the Alhambra. She's used to beautiful flowing water and all sorts of things, but not in not yeah, in Mary she's got a England. fountain in her bedroom yeah. rather than do, don't dip your tankard in the swamp, it'd be full of frog spawn. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> also, I suggested is that uh, she should learn French because English ladies didn't know Spanish or Latin. Really? Hmm. Weirdly, doesn't suggest English, which yeah. I find a bit odd. Um, so, but uh, Catherine does um, uh, take this on board, obviously, but she also is corresponding with her future husband, Prince Arthur, um, oh. in Latin. So, obviously, he can correspond in Latin. Um, so, he writes to her in 1499, translated into English, obviously. I cannot tell you what an earnest desire I feel to see your highness. Let it be hastened that the love conceived between us and the wished-for joys may reap their proper fruit. Uh, so, after some delays caused by uh, another Muslim, Muslim rebellion uh, that they do successfully put down, um, and also, is, frankly, Isabella's reluctance to let her last child leave. Mm. She's a bit sad to see her go. Mm. Uh, but mm. finally, Catherine undertakes the hard journey for England in May 1501. Uh, so, it's crossing mountains, enduring storms in the Bay of Biscay. Um, after three weeks at sea, she's actually forced to return to Spain because the storms are so bad. Oh, God. So uh, Henry sends his uh, best captain to go and get her. But even then, she's almost shipwrecked in the English Channel. Yeah, that's... that's. I mean, the distances that we're talking about are... I can't... It's hard to get your head around when, when you've had a life of um, aeroplanes. Because, as I say, she's in the Alhambra. So, you know, this is right at the bottom of Spain. Yeah. And she has to go so right to the top and then get all the way... Yeah, but I mean, how long are we talking? So they've had three weeks there. How long? Well, so it was May that she set off from the Alhambra, and uh, it's on the second of October that uh, Margaret Beaufort, Henry's mother, is able to record in her book of hours, "My Lady Princess landed." Wow. Gosh, yeah, that's heavy. Mm. So it's almost half the year that it takes her to actually get to England. You can't. Yeah, blimey. Hmm. But she does land safely, as I said, in October um, at Plymouth, uh, which is rather inconvenient as all the dignitaries are waiting for her 150 miles to the east <laughs> at Southampton. Well, I mean, because the, the letter informing them of the change of location is in that boat. There's no way to get there quicker. Um, even so, even though it's not planned, she's welcomed very enthusiastically in Plymouth. Everyone's quite excited to see her because um, she is a prestigious bride. She's the first foreign consort in uh, 50 years um, and, frankly, one of the most 
prestigious princesses that any English monarch or heir has ever had as a bride. Yeah, totally. I mean, she must have looked like an alien creature landing in Plymouth to the people there. Mm. And it's newfound stability for England as well. This is the first time an English heir has married during his father's lifetime since the Black Prince in 1361. Oh, wow. So that's 150 years years? since the son of the king has married during the king's lifetime. It's good, isn't it? Because she represents that stability. If you've got Spain behind you just sort of holding whoever's in charge's hand or protecting them a bit being an umbrella from these ruddy french yeah well and frankly just each other you think all of the previous um consorts that we've did in the last mini series it's been a case of marrying somebody from another english family to try to offset the yeah. succession dispute so now you're marrying a princess from spain the most you know revered powerful monarchs in europe that's a huge yeah. change that's a huge message to send out for the Tudors. Yeah, saying that the house is totally in order at home that we can get this sorted abroad. Yeah. Anyway, so it takes her another month to actually get to London, because I guess she's probably not feeling it hugely well after the journey, so it goes quite slowly. Um, so she finally makes a ceremonial entry into London on the 12th of November. Oh, God, I mean, that's about now, isn't it? She's doing that journey yeah. this exactly this time of year. Mm. Oh... <laughs> <laughs> after Poor woman. a month of storm. Let's yeah, see. and left left Spain arguably at its most beautiful. Yes. It went downhill quickly mm. well, over a long time. Um, now, her entourage causes quite the stir. Um, she brings uh, several Africans with her uh, in her household, oh, yeah. including a trumpeter, John Blank, who's uh, one of the earliest recorded black people in England after the Roman period. I'd say he wasn't recorded if they've called him blank. Is that where the form said insert surname? <laughs> well, that's fascinating, though, Rex. Fact. Mm. Um, however, it's Catherine herself riding side saddle on a great mule and in Spanish dress who uh, properly steals the show. Uh, so Thomas More seems to have been spellbound at the sight. She thrilled the hearts of everyone. She possesses all those qualities that make for beauty in a very charming young girl. Everywhere she receives the highest of praises, but even that is inadequate. <laughs> How old is she? Uh, she is uh, about 16. And Arthur? Oh, no, is she 16 or is she... Oh, no, yeah, she is 15, 16. Um, Arthur's 14, so he's a year younger than her. Um, a more personal welcome comes from her future mother-in-law, Elizabeth of York, who will be something of a surrogate mother to Catherine. Uh, mm. in England. Um, so their first meeting saw Catherine and her entourage uh, arrive uh, at Baynard's Castle where Elizabeth was hosting them um, in the afternoon, but such was all the feasting and dancing and merriment that they had to return home by torchlight. What year? What time of year? I, mean, I suppose it's November, so I guess it doesn't have to be that late at night, but yeah. the uh, the implication is that they have a lovely time. <laughs> <laughs> Um, Now, despite Isabella advising Henry uh, not to spend too much money and to have a modest ceremony, um, Henry VII is determined that the wedding will be one of the great spectacles of the reign. I I mean, I completely sympathise. I mean, if you're ever going to do it, that is... It's it's, it's celebrating not just this wedding, but the success of their uh, accession Mm. of securing such a prestigious bride but also this stability over the past 150 years yeah exactly here we are 
so the venue is the old St. Paul's Cathedral, so the grandest uh, church in or cathedral in London. Uh, the royal couple, both dressed in white, walk along um, this elevated walkway that Henry's had built. So it goes all the way through sort of the entrance of the church right into the nave, going through the crowd, so all packed in. Um, and oh, so they don't have steps up to the... No, so it's at head height as well. So you've got the crowd on the floor and then you've got this big walkway up. So it's sort of like going to a massive stadium rock concert, basically, and they're just walking yeah. all the way down the middle, right into the nave where they have that. That is exactly what it's like, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Cool. Um, so it's an incredible spectacle. And you've also got all the musicians are right up in the vaults uh, singing and playing the music. So it's really reverberating around because it's literally it's right up in the gods. That makes such a spectacle, wouldn't it? Even on film now, I'd love yeah. to see that. Um, now, unfortunately, we don't know what the newlyweds thought of each other. Um, as I said, Catherine's a year older than Arthur, and um, she's often depicted in sort of TV and film as having sort of traditional Spanish looks, a kind of dark hair, dark eyes. But she actually conforms more to contemporary English beauty types. So she's got auburn hair and blue eyes. Oh, right. So okay. she probably looks a bit more like you'd expect a Tudor to look, I guess. Mm. It's more palatable for the populace. Indeed. Um, Arthur's very much in his father's image, so quite a long face, quite a sort of serious nature. Um, he told his parents afterwards that uh, he was happy to behold the face of his lovely bride. Though apparently conversation would have proved difficult, because whilst they corresponded with each other in Latin, when they actually meet, it transpired that they'd learnt different pronunciations and couldn't really understand each other. Oh, no. So one of them spoke with, like, English with a Geordie and the other one with a Devon accent. I couldn't... <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, perhaps this is partly to explain why Catherine is recorded as becoming annoyed and pensive in the following weeks, um, particularly after the departure of most of her Spanish attendants. So it basically feels like she's just quite homesick. Yeah. Yeah, that, I reckon that's a misunderstanding of her. And all, all the big... Uh, all the big pageantries maybe just got a bit much after all the travel, etc. So with a rather unheralded sensitivity, Henry uh, decided to do something about this. So he invited her to inspect his library at Richmond, knowing that she had a love of learning, uh, to show her his many goodly pleasant book of works. Oh, that's nice. And he let her pick Quite. some jewels as well. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, Catherine and Arthur leave London in December to go to Ludlow Castle, where Arthur will govern Wales in preparation for his kingship. And sadly, though, just three months later, they both fall ill. And while thankfully Catherine recovers, Arthur does not. And Prince Arthur dies on the 2nd of April, 1502. Uh, possibly tuberculosis or the dreaded sweating sickness. Also, um, possibility of testicular cancer has been speculated really? by some people. That's rare in someone so young, though, isn't it? Yeah, so I think it can uh, advance very quickly, which is what does happen to Arthur. That's why they've... Oh, right. But... Um, oh. But, as I say, Catherine does seem to be unwell as well, so perhaps it was more of a viral thing. Um, she then, of course, returns to London. At first, perhaps, they were wondering whether she might have been pregnant with Arthur's child and whether that, perhaps, was her illness. Mm. Um, but by the time she gets back to London in May 1502, it's evident that this is not the case. So, I had no idea that was so soon after she had arrived. Yeah, so they're only married for a few months before Arthur dies. Is it normal protocol then just to go to the next son? Because I suppose from from a practical point of view, it was that they wanted this daughter to marry the eldest son of that kingdom, not mm. specifically that person. So it was that default it would happen. It wasn't it's not default, no. Um so initially for her she would have thought, well, you know, she's been destined to be Queen of England all this time and that's just come to nothing. She's widowed at sixteen. 
and that's yeah, it. But it probably gives her a chance to start again and get back to the Alhambra and go, God, I, try, I was given the chance to try that out <laughs> yeah. and it was horrible. Well, initially, that it does almost look like that's what's going to be because there's a bit of a money dispute and Isabel and Ferdinand sort of make a show of calling her back. Um, but in reality, oh. neither England nor Spain want to lose the alliance. So although it's not the just the done thing that you just go from one brother to the other, they that's what they basically just decide to do. So they have renegotiate, and the plan is now that she will marry Henry's second son and his new heir, who is, of course, the future Henry VIII. Yeah. Now, uh, now the Archbishop of Canterbury apparently has some reservations about this, um, but they do receive papal dispensation in 1504, so the marriage is planned to take place when Henry turns 15 in uh, sort of 1506 or 1507. Unfortunately, though, Catherine's position at court quickly deteriorates. Uh, Elizabeth of York dies after childbirth in February uh, 1503, um, and grief rather hardens Henry VII. This is when he becomes a bit more of the miser that we sort of think him of. Um, although he does actually, does actually briefly consider marrying Catherine for himself now that he's available oh, yeah. and she's there. Um, so he just float this idea, but Isabella replies that it was a very evil thing, one never before seen, the mere mention of which offends the ears. A uh, uh, hard no, then. Um, anyway, Henry takes the hint and uh, mm. abandons the idea, but Isabella herself dies in November 1504. And beyond the devastating personal loss for Catherine, it also significantly reduces her status because she's now really just a princess of Aragon with Philip of Burgundy, who's married to um, Catherine's sister, claiming Castile. So Ferdinand is now struggling to keep Spain together. So if Spain's potentially not going to be a thing anymore, Castile is the greater kingdom, Henry VII thinks, better pursue this alliance with Burgundy. Oh, gives him a chance to jump out and try another pair of shoes on. Yeah, so he thinks that's a better alliance, because Burgundy, that's the son of the Holy Roman Emperor, if he's going to have Castile as well. So Catherine's no longer such a prized bride that she was before. Okay. And Catherine is left in a state of limbo, as she tells uh, her father. Henry regards me as bound, and his son as free. Prince Henry is not so old that today is disagreeable. Thus mine is always the worst part. So she can't go anywhere. It's not like Henry says, right, no, we're going to marry someone else. You go back to Spain. We've got a new person. Mm. She's stuck there unable to really do anything, whereas Prince Henry could be married to this person, could be married to that person. Mm. Mm. Her other problem is financial, because trying to keep Spain unified is very costly, and Ferdinand declines to pay Catherine's marriage portion, which Henry VII is demanding. And as we say, obviously, Henry VII is very much a man who is counting his pennies and isn't very pleased about this. So in response, Henry VII treats Catherine increasingly badly. He keeps her away from court, certainly keeps her away from his son, Prince Henry, uh, and refuses to pay her bills, um, which sort of reduces her to pawning uh, her plates and jewels to pay off her household. Oh, dear. Uh, it, and that is on purpose by Henry to make... He's trying to pressure Ferdinand into... Right. Yeah. Um, so, you know, alone and vulnerable and still quite naive of politics and the, the ways of the world at this point, Catherine's almost tricked into a plot by her governess into betraying her father uh, until the Spanish ambassador shows her what's going on and she dismisses the governess. But, you know, it's a very difficult position that Catherine's in for these, these years. Mm. Mm. But... How long does this go on for? 
Um, well, the dismissal of uh, her governess and realising that she's being betrayed by someone in her household does seem to mark a turning point for Catherine. So she now takes more control over her own affairs. Um, and her father, Ferdinand, seems to be fairly impressed by what he's seeing from her, maybe seeing a bit of Isabella in her. And he figures out a cheap way that he can improve her standing at court. So in 1507, uh, he appoints Catherine as the Spanish ambassador to England. Oh, clever man. Which makes her the first female ambassador in European history. Oh, I like the cut of his jib. Mm. And boom, Rex, fact. And this seems to have given her a new lease of life. So she really throws herself into the dark arts of diplomacy and coding letters in cipher, revels in verbally sparring with Henry VII and learning how to dissimulate. I, you know, present yourself in one way, but actually you're playing them and doing something else. Well, um... So she did actually. She was actually the. It wasn't. She's like not she just an honor. She's not just an honorary thing that means he has to give her a room at court. She's yeah. she is actually doing the job. Oh my goodness! So she's she's representing her parents now. Mm. Well, or Ferdinand because Isabella's died, but yeah. Oh yeah, blow me over. She works hard to promote Ferdinand's interests as well as trying to keep the fire burning for her own marriage. Um, though this doesn't seem to be any closer to fruition, and she felt that her fellow ambassadors were basically making things worse. Um, she's also frequently unwell in this period, probably influenced by stress. So she writes to her father in March 1509, sounding like a broken woman. Do not let me perish otherwise. I am afraid I might do something which neither the King of England nor your Highness, who has much more weight, will be able to prevent. Send for me to Spain, that I may conclude my few remaining days in serving God. Oh, gosh. Clearly just broken by all of this. And yet, just a few weeks after that letter, everything changes. Henry VII dies on the 21st of April, 1509, and his 17-year-old son now becomes King Henry VIII. Queen! So just three weeks after his father's death, Henry VIII declares his intention to marry Catherine, and then just over a month later, on the 11th of June, that's exactly what he did. And uh, Catherine is finally Queen of England. I reckon he really liked her, because when, when you suddenly find yourself King of England, the world's your oyster, mm. and he decides to sort that out toot sweet. I, mean, I reckon he thought, oh, I really want to, I really, really fancy Catherine. Could marry that one. Burn <laughs> this. Execute him. <laughs> Off we go. <laughs> but it is, it is a remarkable turnaround, though. You know, there's... It's not like Henry VII was in the final stages of renegotiating marriage and it was going to happen. It's, it's, it's been talked about, but it's not on the cards. Mm. And then suddenly they're married. So, you know, obviously a desirable, uh, obviously an alliance with Spain is desirable, um, particularly yeah. as Philip of Burgundy died in 1506, so Ferdinand's a bit more powerful again. Mm. Um, and also Henry, with his sort of chivalric, romantic ideals, he's very much in awe of Ferdinand as a crusader. And mm. also... Henry would love to make war on France because, again, he wants to be Henry V, he wants to be Edward III. So, ally with King of Spain, make war on France. It all makes sense to Henry VIII. Yeah. yeah. He's also, because although he's nearly 18, he's very nearly 18, but he's still 17 when he becomes king. So, again, marrying quickly does rather help to transition him into manhood. Yeah, it's an awkward, awkward time, 17, isn't it? Mm. Not quite 18, but he can drive. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, perhaps the most important, as you said, probably, and this does obviously turn out to be the case with Henry and his marriages, it's because he wanted to marry her. Yeah. Because, you know, you think she'd been part of his life since he was 
10 years old, um, he actually rides beside her during her ceremonial entrance into London and he escorts her to the nave at her wedding to his brother. Oh, yeah. I mean, I'm convinced of this. At those incredibly formative years, mm-hmm. there's this slightly older foreign princess in, in, in yeah. the same castle. Yeah. Of course. Mm. Of course he's going to fancy her. Yeah. It's nothing, it's nothing to mm-hmm. do with that, honestly. It's, it's a technicality. I've just <laughs> got to go through this. Um, also, Catherine had maintained contact with him despite the intransigence of Henry VII. She used to shower him with gifts uh, at New Year's and uh, obviously also can take advantage of her position as ambassador to advance her cause with people at court. Mm. Mm. So she plays her hand as well. Uh, the wedding itself is a very small and private affair. Uh, which does seem to be Henry's tastes for weddings, so the pageantry is saved uh, for a double coronation on the 24th of June, uh, the most magnificent double coronation since Edward I and Eleanor of Castile. Oh, yeah. Um, Henry possesses to Westminster wearing a robe of crimson velvet furred with ermine, uh, while even his horse wears trappings of gold damask. It looks quite magnificent. Uh, Catherine is dressed in white, um, her hair flowing loose, um, sits in a carriage borne by two white horses. Banquet was said to have been greater than any Caesar had known. Mm. Um, Henry and Catherine sat on an elevated stage at Westminster Hall. So again, quite the spectacle. They're up there Mm. for everyone to view. Uh, And then the subsequent festivities goes on for days. um, And it's only ended uh, prematurely by the death of Henry's grandmother, Margaret Beaufort. Oh, of... um... Margaret Beaufort fame. Hell for Margaret Beaufort fame, yeah. Yeah. Which also ends any sort of sense that there might be any kind of regency. Because that sort yeah, of was kind of her role. But once she's gone, you know, party time. He's off. Yeah. He's out of the blocks then, isn't he? Um, and they're a very well-matched couple, Henry and Catherine. Like his grandfather, Edward IV, Henry's tall, handsome, as possesses a very easy charm. Um, while Catherine, although she's five years older, she's only 23, so still young, uh, contemporaries later recalled that there were few women who could compete with the Queen in her prime uh, for beauty. Uh, they shared a love of music and hunting, both very pious, but also uh, exceptionally well-educated by humanist scholars. So you've got oh, the piety, cool. but also that other sort of stuff. Um, Catherine readily participates in Henry's chivalric games, so she quite is into her sort of faux medieval... Role play. Role play, exactly. So um, she's suitably abashed when Henry and his companions burst into her chambers dressed up as Robin Hood and his merry men. So she feigns not to recognise him, but then she and her ladies all join in with the dancing. That's amazing. It's cosplay. And what do they come dressed in? Uh, dressed up Robin, as? Robin Hood and his merry men. Yeah. Doesn't it's not hard if you're a Tudor person anyway. Hmm. Yes. <laughs> so I wouldn't tell that they were Robin Hood. That's like just <laughs> someone bursting into my house now dressed as I don't know, someone who's going to assault me hmm. and <laughs> then <laughs> pretending to assault me. And now let's dance, sir. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, well, thankfully, Catherine knows what's going on, and she very easily plays to the game. She's, you know, the lady that he can dedicate everything to at the jousting. They're sort of, you know, they both know their role mm. in this all this pageantry. Um, Catherine describes this period to her father in a letter as continuous feasting. So it's f- <laughs> I thought you were going to say absolutely <laughs> crackers. He <laughs> runs into my room dressed as Robin Hood. <laughs> She is enjoying it as well. So she describes the time as continuous feasting. We've got pageantry, sort of jousting tournaments pretty much every month. Court basically goes to bed after midnight uh, every night. Henry regularly visiting her bedchamber after uh, after hours. 
Um, and they also they seem a genuine love match. Um, they uh, used to send messages to each other every three days whenever they were apart. Henry told Ferdinand that even if we were still free, it is she we would choose for our wife before all others. While a Spanish visitor to the court at this time recorded, King Henry loved the Queen his wife greatly, stating publicly in French that his highness was happy because he was owner of such a beautiful angel and that he had found himself a flower. Oh, size. Mm. Now, beyond the romance, Catherine is also uh, you know, an excellent queen and partner. Uh, in his kingship. Um, as he said, she's five years a senior, but also she has experience as an ambassador. So she knows her statecraft really more than Henry does. Yeah. Uh, as such, she is one of Henry's closest uh, advisers. Uh, he frequently invites foreign dignitaries into Catherine's chambers for an evening's entertainment and uh, debate. Uh, and she's a key player in these sort of shifting alliances between England, Spain, uh, and France, so she's you know she's there participating in the field of cloth of gold uh, in 1520. Helps to secure the Anglo-Spanish alliance known as the Great Enterprise, uh, which is uh, where they're aiming to recover England's lost lands uh, from the Hundred Years' War in France. So as Giles Tremler, a biography, put it, she could sew his shirts, but also discuss how to make war with France. Could she sew his shirts? She did. She did use sew his shirts. Hmm. And she did used to discuss how to make war with France. So, I mean, yeah, <laughs> what accurate. more could you ask? <laughs> Her influence reached its peak in 1513 when Henry left the country to make war on France. Um, and in his absence, he appoints Catherine as regent. Yeah, seems natural now, mm. doesn't it? So, as befits the daughter of two reigning monarchs, she seems to have taken to governing the country uh, with ease, uh, most notably in coordinating the response to an invasion of England by Scotland, which culminated in an English victory at the Battle of Flodden, which uh, claimed the life of King James IV of Scotland. That was then? That was then. Um, it's the most significant uh, military victory of Henry's entire reign, though Catherine is obviously careful not to let it overshadow Henry's victories while he was off in France. Because she knows how precious he is. Mm. That's amazing. And, you know, Henry, when Henry returns and they're reunited, it was said that there was such a loving meeting that every creature rejoiced. I mean, they couldn't, they couldn't script it better, could they? Jousting every month, continuous feasting. There's one thing missing, though, G-Man. There is. And as we will see after the break, there were clouds on the horizon. Very nice. Uh, Henry infamously was desperate for a son and heir, uh, and just five months after the wedding, Catherine was pregnant, but sadly she uh, miscarried a child in January of 1510. Mm. Um, but because her belly remained swollen, probably in reality due to some kind of infection, uh, the doctors believed that there must be a second child still living. Oh. So they carry on as if she is still pregnant, even when she starts menstruating again, they still think, no, no, she's definitely still pregnant. Um, Henry very publicly escorts her to a final banquet at Westminster before she then enters her confinement. Uh, but by March, and they've been waiting around for quite a long time, no baby has arrived, and it's apparent that she hasn't actually been pregnant after all. Does, does her belly go down? Yes. That would be confusing. Well, indeed, and it's a very public humiliation for both of them because they've made a big show of this. It's not like this is all very private, you know, ambassadors, etc., witnessing this. So ultimately they announced that she had suffered a miscarriage, which technically yeah. obviously she had, but 
quite a while earlier and quite a while before she actually went into confinement. But they'd evidently still been sleeping together right up until her lying in the confinement because by May 1510, two months after accepting that she wasn't actually pregnant, uh, Catherine realised that she, in fact, was now pregnant for a second time. Oh, right. Hmm. Oh, good. Hmm. Uh, and her second pregnancy goes much more smoothly. So on New Year's Day in 1511, she gives birth to a baby boy who's christened Prince Henry. Obvs. Uh, celebrations are ecstatic, bells are rung, bonfires lit, fountains flowing with wine. Tower of London expends 270 pounds of gunpowder, just firing off salutes. Mm-hmm. Um, and in February, Henry stages the most magnificent tournament ever held in England, where he runs as Sir Loyal Heart, putting on magnificent displays of horsemanship, winning the prize on the second uh, day and being spotted afterwards, taking off his armour and kissing and hugging Catherine in most loving manners. Chronicler concluded by saying, and so this triumph ended with mirth and gladness. Hmm. Happily ever after. Uh, well, sadly not, though, of course. Tragically, just ten days after the tournament, uh, the little baby Prince Henry died. Hmm. After about 50 days or so. Um, of what? Uh, we don't know. It's not, re- it's not recorded. Obviously, both... Uh, devastated. The French ambassador was advised against presenting Henry with letters of condolence, or to say a word about it at present, as it would only revive the king's grief. Mm. Yeah. After two more uh, stillborn sons, a healthy child is finally born in 1516. Two more? Yes, two more. Oh, poor couple. Uh, unfortunately, from Henry's perspective, unfortunately, um, the baby that is healthy and survives is a girl, Mary. Oh, no. Oh, no. So when the Venetian ambassador congratulated Henry, he added that the state would have been yet more pleased had the child been a son. Yeah, I mean, what was Mary thinking? That's what the Venetian ambassador says to Henry when he congratulates him. Uh, and dip- oh, that way yeah, round. Yeah, that way round. Diplomatically, Henry replies that we are both young. If it was a daughter this time, by the grace of God, sons will follow. Indeed, though, uh, Henry dotes on his daughter. Uh, when Mary's two and an Italian envoy had an audience with Henry, uh, Henry brings Mary in to show her off and proudly declares, this child never cries. <laughs> but while Henry is still obviously hoping for a son, Catherine has no qualms about raising Mary as a potential monarch, so she commissions a Spanish scholar to develop um, educational work specifically for the purpose of raising a future queen regnant. Oh, cool. What Henry did? No, Catherine. Oh, Catherine did, right. Because mm. right. yeah. obviously Catherine is the daughter of a queen regnant, so she thinks, well, this yeah. is absolutely fine, why not? Um, indeed, Mary will prove to be a very precocious and highly intelligent uh, child. Uh, So Catherine's first decade as queen has largely been a success, um, but she takes a less prominent role in diplomacy following the death of her father, which came just a few weeks after Mary's birth. So I guess that combo of a daughter finally to raise and Mm. then her father dying, she's not quite as prominent. She's still involved, but not quite to the same extent as she has been before. She's got other stuff on, hasn't she? And she's no longer the daughter of the King of Spain. She's now the aunt. Um, and the 1522 Anglo-Spanish alliance that uh, we mentioned, the Great Enterprise, had promised much, including capturing the King of France in 1525. But when that happens, her nephew, Charles V of Spain, chose instead to ally with the captured French king and thus thwarts Henry's continental ambitions. And what's more, it means that he's really, after over 10 years, has reaped no diplomatic benefits in the end from marrying Catherine. Mm. And unfair as this is, she is very much tarnished by association. Well, that was her point, wasn't it? Like, it I disagree with it morally, but that's why they got her 
involved in the show. Yeah. Now, um, with Catherine sort of taking a less prominent role in the 1520s, the new power at court was uh, the Lord Chancellor, Cardinal Wolsey. Mm. Uh, now, Catherine and Wolsey had actually previously worked together quite well during Catherine's regency, but Wolsey always favours a French alliance, whereas obviously Catherine is always for Spain. So Wolsey arranges a betrothal between Mary and the French Dauphin, and he is also the one that arranges the Field of Cloth of Gold, which is this grand Anglo-French summit. Yeah. Now, after Charles has uh, betrayed England um, and the Anglo-Spanish alliance falls apart, Wolsey seems to really pushed his position and try to isolate Catherine. Um, so he places spies and informants in her household, um, prevents her from talking to the Spanish ambassador without an escort. Um, as Giles Tremlett observed, a new world coloured by suspicion and mistrust was beginning to encroach on the previously happy-go-lucky regime of Henry's court. Yeah, yeah, it feels like it's suddenly got all um, evil stepmothery somehow. What's going on? Isn't that all because of the arrival of this Wolsey chap? It's not all uh, all about Wolsey. The sad truth, regardless of what Wolsey up to, the sad truth really is that Henry is falling out of love with Catherine. And how old is he now? Well, Henry is about thirty four, thirty five, um, but Catherine at forty is beginning to show the physical effects of her multiple pregnancies whereas henry is still if not in the mm. prime he's still very lean athletic and strong he's not the later henry that we think of so uh, the king of france rather cruelly observed that henry has an old deformed wife while he himself is young and handsome they're all so cruel aren't they henry no longer frequents uh, catherine's bed uh, whilst Catherine is now spending a much larger amount of her time in her devotions uh, and also managing her own household. Um, and most importantly, she's no longer going to be able to conceive a child. Um, cruel as it seems, the desperation for a son is understandable in the time. Yeah. It's shared by contemporaries. Henry does genuinely believe that he needs a son to avoid a return to the chaos of the Wars of the Roses. And indeed, the only time England's ever tried to have um, a female succession of Queen Regnant was with the Empress Matilda and that led to the anarchy and a civil war so Henry mm. does believe if he doesn't have a son it's all going to fall apart again so that's his duty he has to get a son to secure the succession yeah and what's more seven months after Catherine's last pregnancy um, which also fails that was 1518 her final pregnancy mm. um, Henry does have a son uh, Henry Fitzroy born to a mistress Elizabeth Blount who uh, sports Wolsey as a godfather. Oh, no. So he, he really is all over the place then. Mm. So in 1525, after the Spanish betrayal, um, a few months afterwards, um, despite being illegitimate, Fitzroy is suddenly showered with uh, various titles which would usually be reserved for the heir to the throne. Uh, uh, yeah. Because uh, he is he survives, doesn't he? I remember him. He does survive for a while, yeah. So he is... He is the king's son. He's acknowledged by Henry as being his son. There's that question mark there. Is Henry considering uh, recognising his illegitimate son as his heir? Uh, Catherine mm. is obviously furious at this. And although Mary is then sent to Wales sort of effectively to govern, she's still a child, but she is mm. given recognition as Princess of Wales, so she is being shown to still be the heir. Even so, Henry's doubts are thus very clear for everybody to see. Mm. And then mm. fatally for Catherine, in 1526, Henry falls in love with Anne Boleyn, one of Catherine's ladies-in-waiting. Uh-oh. Mm. And when Anne Boleyn refuses to be Henry's mistress, Henry is uh, suitably enraptured and determines he will marry Anne. 
divorced, technically, an annulment. Whether Henry would have decided to move on from Catherine without Anne Boleyn uh, is a moot point, but he was becoming genuinely concerned by a section in Leviticus uh, from the Bible which prohibits marrying your brother's widow. Thou shalt not uncover the nakedness of your brother's wife. It is thy brother's nakedness. Had they, they weren't married, though, were they? Arthur and Catherine. Oh, they were. Of course they were. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah Remember yeah, that yeah, big yeah, whole yeah. wedding thing that we talked yeah, about? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I saw that, didn't I? There was trumpeters there. I said, I'd never forget it. Wonderful. I'll thing. never forget this day. <laughs> uh, so the penalty for such a marriage is that they shall be childless. Oh, it's adding up, isn't it? Now, obviously, they're not childless. They've got a daughter. But Henry interprets childless as to mean they shall have no sons. Of course, because he's not childless. He's not childless. And indeed, they had had sons, just not surviving sons. But nevertheless, Henry thinks we are clearly committing a sin in the eyes of God. That's why we've had all these failed pregnancies. This is why I don't have a son, because we shouldn't have married. Um, Technically, of course, they do have a dispensation from the Pope on this very Hmm. uh, issue. uh, But Henry is concerned that this dispensation had been given in error. Henry, frankly, is confident that it's going to be pretty easy for himself to get out of the marriage uh, because papal dispensations are very often uh, rescinded as and when it's convenient for royals. So Louis XII annulled his first marriage in 1498. Henry's own sister Margaret divorces her second husband uh, in 1527. That's how Eleanor of Aquitaine uh, married Henry II. She had her first marriage to the King of France annulled and then married Henry. So it happens all the time. So Henry had every reason to think that this was... You know, pretty much a done deal. Yeah, uh, you're just um, applying for like um, equivalent of some sort of assurance or inde- yeah, indemnity assur- insurance mm. rather than <laughs> assurance um, today. Yeah, it, it happened all the time. What was the problem? Well, it's that's what Henry thinks. And what's more, Carlton Wolsey is respected in Rome, while Henry had been granted the title Defender of the Faith in 1521 for his work defending the papacy against the criticisms of Martin Luther. Yeah, he, so he's thinking, if nothing else, I can trade in that goodwill and that title for a, you know. Exactly. So initially, um, he doesn't even think he needs to worry about that. So he appoints Wolsey to oversee a secret tribunal in uh, May 1527, which will hear evidence against the marriage and, uh, Henry assumes, rule that it was invalid. <laughs> hear evidence against the marriage. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, surprisingly, though, uh, Wolsey rules that the case was too complex uh, to decide upon by himself and that they would need to consult Rome before actually you could come to a conclusion. Oh, right, another missed opportunity there. Well, yes, I mean, probably, I guess, Wolsey thought, if we don't go to Rome, then this will be a big issue, so we really should. Uh, yeah, so this means that um, Henry now actually has to tell Catherine what he's doing, which he hadn't done before. Oh, um, so he tells her what about what he's been looking at, that they had been living in mortal sin all the years they had been together. Did you not know? Mm. Um, sobbing, uh, unsurprisingly, Catherine swore to Henry that her union with Arthur had never been consummated. Um, and rather disarmed by all of this, Henry rather clumsily tries to comfort her, telling her that uh, all, all shall be done for the best, and urges her not to tell anybody, and then beats a very hasty retreat. That's not the man who goes around nicking and slaughtering the heads off wives? No, indeed. Weird. Doesn't respond well to emotional confrontation. Yeah, yeah. Can't, I mean, he will... He, Yeah, quite right. He will go to a public execution, wield the axe himself, <laughs> but present him with a sobbing woman. Ah, 
And indeed, Henry will find himself almost permanently on the back foot throughout this uh, period, largely because he and uh, Wolsey completely underestimate Catherine. So she had actually already known about the tribunal via informants, so she was ready with her response. I'm sure her emotional response is genuine, but equally she knows mm. what things she needs to say. So, as I said, she denies consummating the marriage, which was one of the key points. Uh, she mm. also demands indifferent counsel, i.e. that she can pick people from outside of England. For what? Uh, to represent her. Oh, at this thing, yeah, yeah, at yeah. Her, yeah. Mm. Uh, she evades Wolsey's spies and manages to get a message to her nephew, the Emperor, King of Spain, who pledges mm. his support, so it's now been internationalised. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. And by rather unfortunate coincidence from Henry's perspective, uh, troops loyal to the Emperor had just sacked Rome and taken control of the Pope, meaning that the man Henry needs to greenlight his separation from Catherine is completely under the thumb of Catherine's nephew, who's the most powerful monarch in Europe. <laughs> yeah, a new, um, a new, a new pope then. Same pope, but same pope, right? Hands rather just... tied behind his back. Mm. Uh, so the pope sends uh, Cardinal Campeggio to England in October 1528 to oversee a legatine court, which will determine uh, the validity of the marriage. Um, now, the Pope has also been pressured by Henry and Wolsey into giving a secret decretal commission, um, which basically kind of assumes that the original dispensation wasn't valid. So he's saying, look, as long as you can prove it, we'll assume that that's probably the case, then I give you permission to declare the marriage invalid. Mm. So Henry thinks, well, this is a done deal, then the Pope says it's fine. Um, but Catherine brings out her secret weapon, which is a papal brief sent to her mother um, for the dispensation for her marriage to Henry, but with slightly different wording from the final papal bull that Henry and Wolsey have got. So it's still it's equally valid, mm. but it's slightly different version. And her version explicitly states that the marriage had been consummated, whereas the final version was quite ambiguous about that. So although Catherine denies that she consummated the marriage, the fact that there was a papal brief saying, even if you did, it's absolutely fine for you to marry his brother. Right. So it completely right. undermines the basis on which the Pope had given the mm. the green light. So that means they're going to properly have to do the court and the trial. Yeah. Nice. That's handy, isn't it? Mm. That bit of... Uh, so in 1529, the Legatine Court is convened. Uh, Henry believed a public trial would demonstrate the righteousness uh, of his cause. But, of course, it is Catherine who steals the show and wins support. So when she's called to testify on the first day, rather than sort of standing at the appropriate lectern, she walks over to Henry, and this is with a huge crowd of people watching, walks over to Henry, gets down on her knees and makes a very emotional appeal to him. And she manages to extract a promise from him that she can make her appeal directly to Rome, which he'd previously denied. Oh, again, getting, getting close to him. Mm. Kind of the, it's just like Hitler. And she then makes a very dramatic exit and refuses to play any further part in the proceedings. So basically just doesn't mic drop. And walks ah! out. <laughs> yeah. Um, Catherine's cause becomes very popular with the, the wider public, uh, particularly women. That was not very surprisingly, but it is marked mm. upon by various contemporaries, as well as various senior figures at court, most notably uh, Thomas More. 
Mm. Um, Henry still remains confident of victory, but Campeggio really does kind of feel like the legal argument's been won by Catherine, and he knows that the Pope isn't really going to be in a position to help. But he also knows the Pope doesn't want to fully antagonise Henry. So instead, after they've done all of the hearings and all of that sort of stuff, declares an adjournment. So he doesn't declare on anything. Yeah. And soon afterwards, the Pope accepts Catherine's request to have her appeal transferred to Rome. And then they will have to delay once more. And all appear in Rome? No. So oh. whilst technically, legally, in many ways, Catherine has bested Henry at every stage, um, Henry's patience has now run out. Right. So in 1531 and the 14th of July, without warning, Henry takes his final leave of Catherine. So basically, so they're still sort of weirdly kind of together at court and sort of living together in this weird way. But one day he just leaves and he's like, right, I'm done. Uh, so when she sends a messenger after him, um, he sends the messages back saying that he cared not for her adieu. He had no wish to offer her the consolation of which she spoke or any other and still less that she should send to him or to inquire as to his estate. All right. So he's just written her off now. Exactly. She never sees Henry again after this. Wow. In 1532, Anne Boleyn helped to secure the appointment of her Protestant chaplain, Thomas Cranmer, as Archbishop of Canterbury, and together they helped to cement Henry's estrangement from Rome, arguing that he, as king, was God's representative on earth, rather than the Pope. In October of 1532, Anne finally gives in to Henry's advances um, and falls pregnant. So obviously then that requires... Uh, legitimacy if that's the son so there's a rushed wedding so Henry wants to make sure the child is not born out of wedlock um, yeah. technically of course he is still married to uh, Catherine so in May Cranmer presides over a third court to try the marriage but this time there isn't going to be any opposition so on the 23rd of May 1532 Cranmer declares uh, Henry and Catherine's marriage invalid and she ceases to be Queen of England instead becoming the Princess Dowager i.e. Arthur's widow He's under pressure because there's a baby in the belly of Anne. Anne. Yeah. So that is crucial, that timing. Mm, exactly. Uh, so five days later, the marriage to Anne is declared valid. Hmm. Um, and a few days after that, Anne Boleyn is crowned Queen of England. This, though, is finally enough for the papacy actually to act. So they now declare Catherine's marriage valid and threaten Henry with excommunication in 1534. Yeah, they had to now. Right? Mm, but it's too late. Far, far too late. Thanks to the work of Thomas Cromwell, Parliament passes the Act of Supremacy, making Henry the supreme head of the Church of England. So, in other words, fully breaking from Rome. Um, and what's more, there is also the Act of Succession, which declares Mary illegitimate. All subjects are required to swear an oath in support of the Act of Supremacy and the Act of Succession. So, obviously, most people do uh, make this oath because it's basically it's treason not to. Yeah. Uh, but Bishop John Fisher and Thomas More both refuse and in 1535 are executed. It is, isn't it? It's a question of are you a traitor or not, yes or no. Yeah. Do, you want, do you like your head, yes or no? Mm. Now, Catherine also obviously will not accept either of these things. But the question is, what is going to be done with Catherine? You can't execute the Queen. Well, she's not the Queen. So you can't... Henry, have a <laughs> word with yourself. <laughs> Now, previously, Henry had maintained a sort of veneer of respect towards Catherine. He didn't want to be seen as mistreating her. He wanted to be the virtuous, chivalric, good Christian king. Um, mm. But he, he has enough of that after a while and increasingly just treats her with cruelty and contempt. 
1531, as I said, she was expelled from court. She's also separated from her daughter, Mary, that she had been living with. Um, so Catherine is moved around various locations uh, before settling at Kimbolton Castle in Cambridgeshire in 1534. But she is never allowed to see Mary again. This is just such a... He's, it's a less it's step by step classes in how to become a dictator. Mm. Dermot McCulloch describes this period of Catherine as years of dignified misery. So many of those in her household uh, are dismissed, and the people who are appointed instead are basically more like guards and spies rather than servants. Yeah. Uh, as you said, she refused to take the oaths. Many do fear that she will meet the same fate as Moore and Fisher. She certainly is prepared for that if it comes to it. Wow. Realistically, the prospect of a war with Spain meant that probably Henry would never have actually done yeah. that. December 1535, Catherine falls gravely ill. Still, Henry refused Mary permission uh, to visit, but he did allow uh, Eustace Shapwee, the Spanish ambassador and Catherine's sort of chief defender and friend in this period, uh, to visit. Catherine doesn't write a will because she knows that it's illegal for a married woman to do so, and she doesn't <laughs> want to give any acknowledgement that she's not married to Henry, which in she's her eyes... She's so cool. She is. Yeah. Uh, instead, she dictates a final letter to Henry. My most dear lord, king and husband, the hour of my death now drawing on, the tender love I owe you forceth me, my case being such, to commend myself to you and to put you in remembrance with a few words of the health and safeguard of your soul, which you ought to prefer before all worldly matters and before the care and pampering of your body, for the which you have cast me into many calamities and yourself into many troubles. For my part, I pardon you everything, and I wish to devoutly pray God that he will pardon you also. For the rest, I commend unto you our daughter Mary, beseeching you to be a good father unto her, as I have heretofore desired. Lastly, I make this vow, that mine eyes desire you above all things. Wow. That is... She is... Strong woman. I mean, strong person, isn't she? Like, why? What, what to be able to um, have that level of composure? Uh, and then she dies later that day, seventh of January. That day, seventh of January, fifteen thirty-six, at the age of fifty. Oh man, that's really that's that's hit me. Um, it's, it's very, it's, yeah, it's very moving, isn't it? Yeah. A post-mortem revealed her heart was entirely black, which uh, Shapwee, the ambassador, um, thus thought she's been poisoned. Yeah. Um, modern doctors think probably cure, caused by uh, a cancer, which they wouldn't have understood at the time. Um, it's sometimes said that Henry was finally hit by pangs of conscience and wept over the letter. Um, I mean, we don't know, obviously, what he does in private, but in reality, in public at least, he declared... God be praised that we are free from all suspicion of war. Yeah. Um, Anne gave a handsome present to the messenger who brought the news, and Henry and Anne then both conspicuously Ugh. wore yellow at court, um, which was not, as is sometimes suggested, a traditional Spanish colour of mourning. It is very much a bright and colourful, happy times are here. Yeah, not a black that we would... What a horrible couple. Henry's priority was to get his hands on Catherine's property, um, oh, though it was pointed out, it was pointed out to him that technically, because she wasn't his wife, he's not actually entitled <laughs> to her property. Uh, but he finds a way around that. Yeah, well, by uh, by just being king, I guess. Uh, by remarkable coincidence, uh, the the day of Catherine's funeral 
at uh, Peterborough Cathedral and Berlin uh, suffers the early miscarriage of a baby boy. So just 19 weeks after Catherine's uh, death, Anne Boleyn herself is executed. I'm speechless. That's So basically, five months after Catherine of Aragon dies, Henry marries Jane Seymour, his third wife. You've blown my mind, Frank. Hmm. Uh, in terms of Catherine, no notable memorial was uh, created for Catherine at Peterborough until a plaque was added in, the, uh, in Victoria's reign, um, following a national campaign calling for donations from all the Catherines of England. I thought you were going to say Catholics. No, all the Catherines. So basically everyone who's called Catherine in England is asked to donate. Um, anyway, so that is successful. Um, so that puts a plaque up which describes her as a queen cherished by the English people for her loyalty, piety, courage and compassion. And then in the 20th century, Mary of Teck, who's George V's consort, added a golden banner above the tomb, uh, which says simply Catherine, Queen of England. Um, uh, A service is held in her memory every year at Peterborough Cathedral, and her grave is very rarely to be found without offerings such as flowers and pomegranates. This is just up the road, Graham. It is. We could do a little pilgrimage. Yeah. Yeah. Mary, Queen of Scots, was uh, buried on the other side until when James VI became king. He of Scots, he brought her down to Westminster, but previously he had Catherine Rowgan on one side, Mary Queen of Scots on the other. As like a, um, a storage facility for the queens that we don't know what to do with. <laughs> yeah. Well, we should visit this storage facility. I, I, I've been there Take some loads. pomegranates. Yeah, we should take some pomegranates. Um, or I won't because of their carbon footprint. We're in a new age, Catherine. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, the... We well, just do what Catherine did, just go over the mountains, sail across the Bay of Biscay yes! and they go come sh- back with a pomegranate. A, a totally low-impact, rotten pomegranate. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Correspondence Corner. So that was the life and consortship of Catherine of Aragon. As I said, we will review her uh, next time, but let us know what you've thought so far. Uh, follow us on Twitter and Instagram at RexFactorPod. Like us on Facebook, email RexFactorPodcast.hotmail.com and uh, remember to send in your hashtag consult cards for an episode image uh, of Catherine. I don't want to give too much away, Graham, but I like her a lot. But you'll find out mm. next time. If you'd like to hear more from us, you can join the Privy Council and get access to over 150 bonus episodes. Sign up at Patreon.com forward slash RexFactor. And we have some new Privy Councillors to welcome to the fold. Okay. Mark Pyatt, Simon Ockwell, Charlotte Kirkman, Jake JD, Randall Pringle, Sheena Nichols, Christian hey. Jackson, Carl Brink, Emma Lashley, Catherine Fleming, Francisca Souter, Big Boskman, Evie Hubbard, Tim Campbell, Roxanne Hook, Emma Riley, Amanda, Jack Wilkinson, Ellie Simmons, Brian Pitts, Karina Stone, Lydia Fawcett, Cassie Shilliday. Matt Joint and Victoria Squires. It, uh, thank you very much, all of you. You're all jolly welcome. Anyway, that's all from us today and Catherine for Aragon's biography. Next time we will uh, review her and decide whether or not she has the Rex Factor. Bye. Cheerio. Cheerio.